Well, good morning, everybody. It's a good day. We uh, are starting a new series in the life of Solomon entitled The Wisdom and Folly of the Son of David. Now, in a very real sense, this series serves as a prequel to the series that we just left. Many of you know that we were in the Gospel of Matthew for about 70 weeks, and in that we talked a lot about how Jesus was the coming son of David who would bring about salvation for his people. Now, some questions arise, like, why was there a need for a coming son of David? What's up with the phrase, son of David? What's that all about? Who is the original son of David, and what happened to that original son of David? That story is the story of Solomon, the one whom the scriptures say was at the time of his time on earth, the wisest man in the entire world. So this series is the story of his life, what happened to the original son of David. Now, before we get started looking at his life, I want to go over something regarding biblical interpretation. You see two words on the screen, prescriptive and descriptive. When you read the Bible, there are just going to be two kind of types of literature, prescriptive literature and descriptive literature. And prescriptive literature deals with things the Bible is telling you, ought, telling you that you ought to do or that you should do. So think maybe Paul the Apostle is writing a letter to a church in Philippi, and he says something like, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. He's prescribing behavior for you. He's telling you, like, you should do this or you ought to do this. It can also be in the negative, like, don't be greedy, don't lie. But it's prescriptive. It's prescribing things that you ought to do or that you should do or maybe that you shouldn't do. Descriptive language deals with just merely describing the way something happened. So this happens a lot in the historical books of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where the biblical authors are recording what occurred. They're just writing down history. They're not telling you, like, this is what you should do. So if it records, and then the king stole gold from the temple treasury, that doesn't mean go and do likewise. It's merely recording a historical fact. Now, this is really important because oftentimes when modern people read the Bible, they'll see things and it's filled with like, oh, this is horrible. This is bad. Look what the kings of Israel did here. Look what the kings of Judah did here. I can't believe the Bible supports this. What you have to be careful with is that you aren't uh, thinking that this, this descriptive literature is actually prescribing that behavior for you. Now, what makes it even more complicated is that in descriptive literature, where the Bible is merely recording historical details, it often is telling you those historicals in such a way that the author is actually letting you know, sort of, uh, this is probably bad that he did this, or it's good that somebody did this. So even in descriptive literature, there's ways for the biblical authors to sort of clue you in on what's good and what's bad or what's, what, what is seen in good light or what's seen in bad light. And so it's a way for the author to sort of like wink at you. Yes, I'm telling you history, but don't, don't, go, doing like, don't, don't go do likewise. And so we have to keep that in mind, especially in this series, because we're reading a lot of history. And we got to pay attention to the clues that the author's giving us as they describe historical reality. Okay, so we're going to start the life of Solomon by traveling back four to five hundred years before the time he's born. So we're going to go from four to five hundred years before the time of his birth all the way up to when King Solomon steps on the throne. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 15. When you come into the land that the Lord God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord God will choose 
one from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Okay. So Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it deals with a time after the Exodus. The Exodus is the time where God delivers his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt. He brings about 12 plagues of judgment to ultimately humble one of the like, superpowers of the world, Egypt. Egypt trusted in their gods. They trusted in their chariots. They trusted in their militaristic might. Nevertheless, God humbles them and delivers his people. Now his people go off into the wilderness and God promises them that I am going to take you to something called the promised land. And the promised land is described as a place of milk and honey and pomegranates and fig tree, a place where everyone could have their own grapevine. It's being depicted as a sort of promised garden-like paradise. Like who wouldn't want to go to the promised land where there's all this abundance of life? Now God warns that when you get into the promised land, this garden-like paradise, you are going to say, we want a king. We want a king. Now in this, take a look, you might have caught it. This might be one of those instances that I just described where there's like kind of a description going on. This is what's going to happen. But then the author might be winking at you by the way he records the people wanting a king. Like what's the internal motivation? They say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. This might be not, it might not be a big deal, but it also may be cluing you into like the internal motivation. It's not just that, that a king is bad or that having a king is bad in and of itself. The, the, the Bible, God points kings, but Israel's internal motivation is to possibly be like the other nations. When you have to understand the whole Israel project as a nation is so that they would be a distinct and different people. So this may be one of those ways that the author is like cluing you in, like, okay, this king thing might not be that great of idea. Now he lists, God tells them, these are some requirements of this king. He has to be an Israelite. He has to be of your people. And then he says, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Verse 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for, her, for himself excessive silver and gold. That's kind of weird. It's not a lot of horses, not a lot of wives, not a lot of money. It's, it's, it's a little weird. So it's like, first off, what's up with like not a lot of horses? Because, you know, some of the horse people are like, yeah, what's up with that? We like horses, man. Okay. Who had lots of horses? Who trusted in their chariots? Egypt. So, so God is saying that Israel and its king must not be Egypt-like. They, they can't have horses and chariots because then they will begin to trust in the militaristic might of the horses and chariots. They have to learn to rely on me. And then he says, you shall not have many wives. Why? Because there's a biblical pattern laid down for marriage right at the beginning of our story in Genesis. There's one man and one woman. And it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife so that the two become one flesh. And so the biblical pattern in creation is there's one man and one woman and they come in this co covenantal unity in marriage. Now in the ancient world, did kings practice this? No, in the ancient world, they're, they're all polygamists. They all had multiple wives and concubines. 
So God is saying, you are supposed to be distinct. You're not to be like that. Follow the biblical pattern in Genesis. Third, you don't have a lot of silver and gold. Now, in some sense, it's unavoidable that the king would be wealthy, but I I think what's taking place is God is saying, there shouldn't be so great a distance between the people of the kingdom and the king that the king no longer cares about the struggles of his people and he no longer needs to trust in the Lord. He just merely trusts his wealth and riches. So he's laying out a pattern for what a godly king should be like and he should be fundamentally different than the rulers of Egypt. You're not to be Egypt-like. Okay, so now if you're reading this, this should draw your attention back to something we went over a lot in the Gospel of Matthew. Because way back in Genesis, after Adam and Eve's sin, God pronounces a judgment upon the tempter, the Satan, the serpent of old. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're not going to review this too much because we went over it a lot in Matthew, but essentially God says, one day someone's going to come and be the serpent crusher. He's going to defeat the serpent of old. Now follow this. If Israel has just been delivered from slavery and bondage and they're going to the promised land, a garden-like paradise, and they're going to have a new king installed and this royal king will rule over them in the garden-like paradise, the, the natural response is that this king is going to be the promised one. He will be like a Messiah like figure who will deliver us from this ancient enemy. So leaving Deuteronomy, you're filled with optimism. Things are going great. We're going to the promised land. We're going to have a king. God, people mess with us. There's plagues, man. Things are great. However, if you know the orderings of the book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Phidicus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know Joshua and Judges comes next. Whatever optimism you might have had, Joshua is the successor to Moses. He's a good man. He's like Moses. He's a leader and he fights for the people, but he's also a spiritual leader and he cares, he cares about serving the Lord. But after the time of Joshua, the leadership of Israel gets handed over to judges. And when you hear the word judges, don't think judges in the modern sense. Think like tribal chieftains who rule over localized regions. And the book of Judges is a brutal book. And it's like, there's a lot of bad news. And what's even worse is as the book of Judges goes on, it gets worse and worse. It's like their leadership in Israel is bad. Their sin, people are not serving the Lord. They're doing what's right in their own eyes until you get the last judge of Israel, who's a man who wants to serve God. And he's also a prophet named Samuel. And so the good news is after a long downward kind of spiral of bad judges, at the end, you get this good judge named Samuel who wants to serve the Lord, who's also a prophet. But there's bad news. At the end of Samuel's life, it records this. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. It's messed up. You're old, your kids are wicked, give us a king. It's like, there's no honor. He's like, he's old, no respect. He's like, you're going to die, you're old. We don't like your kids, man. They're wicked, they're brats. Give us a king so that we can be like the nations. It's, just, it's a sad thing. I, when, when I was reading this, it struck me. It was like, dude, here's this guy, Samuel, who, who's serving the Lord, trying to lead the people of Israel. 
and the people aren't honoring him. And what's even worse is he feels the heartache of having kids who don't walk in the ways of the Lord. This is heartbreaking. They say, give us a king. Now Samuel warns them. Samuel warns them, like, you don't want a king. He said, there will, this, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow the ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. So Samuel's like, you think just having like, you think it's bad with just having these judges rule over you, then you're gonna like gather all that power into one person, into a monarch? You think that's magically going to make it all better? It's like, no, he's going to take your sons. They're gonna, your sons are going to fight the war. He's going to take your, your daughter. He's going to take your property. You're going to work. Even if you get a good king here and there, it's only a matter of time before there's bad kings. You don't want that. It's, like, it's almost like he's saying, you guys think like a bigger, stronger, centralized government with one person all powerful at the top, that's gonna, like, like that's gonna fix the potholes and bumps in the slow lane on 101? Like, this doesn't all magically work like that. There's problems at, at, at every level and just selecting one person isn't gonna be the answer. So what do the people say? Then the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So God tells Samuel, give them what they want. Let's appoint a king. Now, some interesting details, though, about what type of thing they're looking for. One, once again, the emphasis on we want a king so that we could be like the other nations. There's not a desire to be distinct or different, to be a wholly marked out group. Secondly, they say they want this king to be able to go before us and fight our battles. Now, you got to understand and remember what we said about Moses and Joshua. They were leaders. They fought They helped the people, but they were also spiritual leaders. They were godly men with integrity who sought to teach the law of Moses in the Torah to the people. So first and foremost, they were spiritual leaders. And then they were also rulers in the other sense. But what they want, they don't want someone to teach them how to walk in the ways of the Lord. They they want someone with militaristic might and strength to fight our battles for us. Give us safety and security. That's the priority. And then third, what's interesting is Samuel is the, the like authority over the people right now. He's not a super authority. He's not a king, but he's at least a judge and a prophet. But they disobey the voice of the one authority that they do have and ask for someone to have more authority than him. As if like that's going to solve all these problems. So Samuel says, okay, we're going to pick a king. And they reveal it to be a man who is a son of a guy named Kish. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerah, son of Berkorah, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. 
There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. It's interesting the details they choose, right? One, he comes from a rich family. Now, that's not bad in and of itself. But remember, Deuteronomy warned that someone, we want someone who doesn't trust in, in wealth and riches. So it's not bad to, 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 to come from a rich family in any, by any means. But it could be, it could, this could be winking at you. Maybe not. Also, it says he's handsome. He's more handsome than all the men of Israel. Do you think pride might be a temptation for this man? Like, the, straight, the Bible straight up says, you are the most handsome man in the land. Can you imagine that? It's not just like a couple people or your, your wife on your anniversary. The Bible, the straight up Bible, he's the most handsome dude around. Like you would walk differently, maybe like, yeah. Then it lists his, his he's very tall. He's very tall. And this is probably to, to, to depict this idea that the, what the people want is someone who's a giant, someone who can slay their giants, someone who is, who's clearly embodying the strength and power of war. Like his physical presence is that. And he's, he's like the tallest. And so it's saying like, watch out for this. And we've warned you, I've warned you personally all in the past about this. You can't just trust in people's height. You probably should, should seek out a more godly and biblical height, like 5'7". Like a solid biblical 5'7". Not too, you don't want to be a Goliath. Nice godly height. Okay, so Saul is, is going to be anointed king, but you need to understand in the ancient world, it's not like, oh, we've gathered some people and made you king, and now everyone in this region thinks you're the king, believes you're the king, and wants you to be the king, and will give, your, give their allegiance to you. So Saul is going to be tested in that. He's been anointed and appointed, but he has to win the hearts and minds of the people. And this first test comes up in 1 Samuel 11. Listen to this. This is, this is brutal. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves to you. When the message came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the manner in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. It's a brutal scene. So there's this kind of strong leader, this kind of, this guy named Nahash over the Ammonites, and he's the big, strong, powerful force. And he's, there's a siege over Jabesh Gilead. And he's like, look, we could do this siege warfare thing and this ends with all of you dying or we could just make a treaty. And the conditions are the treaty of this. We take out your right eye. Likely of mostly of all the, the, the men, maybe particularly the fighting men age, or maybe all the men. It could have been everybody, but likely the men. And there's a reason for this. One is it shames and disgraces the people. But two, what it does is it lets the more kind of powerful force dominate a people, eliminate the fighting men from being able to fight in war. So they're not going to be effective in war this way. Death perception, fight, all of that stuff kind of diminishes. 
but you can still have them do simple tasks so they could be like a servant class and you're their overlord. Simply said, you could still plow and dig holes, but you're not going to be effective in battle. And so the people hear this and, and they weep aloud. Now, this is where it gets interesting. This is where it gets weird. This guy who's their leader, Nahash, in Hebrew, his name is Nahash. Okay? But the Hebrew word Nahash means serpent. A Nahash is the one that tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. And to a Nahash is the one that God says one day someone's going to come and crush the head of the Nahash. So you have this serpent king who has captured the people of God and he's going to enslave them. And the people cry out for what? The people cry out for someone to save us from the serpent king. I mean, this is literally what it says. The serpent, the Ammonite. But that's also his name. Now hear me. What I am not saying is that this guy is literally a snake. And I am not saying um, that he is actually Satan. What I am saying is that Saul's first test will be to defeat the serpent king. And by conquering him, he will free his people and win their hearts and mind. And they will give allegiance to him as the rightful king of Israel. Which says this. In order for this guy to be the king of Israel and have the people serve him, he must first pass this test of defeating this earthly serpent-like king and save his people. So how will the first king of Israel respond? Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh and the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by this time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. This is, this is like Saul at his best. This is Saul when he's like obedient to the Lord and he's not fearing the tyrant or fearing anything else but God. Listen to what he says. He goes, you go tell these people, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, I will be there and I will free them and they will have salvation. I mean, this is like a, the young leader going into battle and he's like, tell them by lunchtime, they'll be free. It's powerful. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, so he organizes them for war. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were together. Saul defeats the Nahash, the serpent king, and saves his people. What's their response? Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgah and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgah and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgah. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. He saves them, 
He delivers them. He beats Nahash the Ammonite. Everyone is celebrating. It's great. They rejoice greatly. And so goes the first story of the king of Israel, and they all lived happily ever after. And Saul never acquired many horses or many wives or much gold or much silver. And he faithfully walked in the ways of the Lord until his dying day. It's like, no, remember, remember the series is called Solomon, the son of David. So the series isn't the son of Saul. It should be about the son of Saul. But it's not, it's about another. Because although Saul was righteous before the Lord in many ways, he would, over the course of his life, drift and his feet would wander. And he would break his commitment to the Lord in many ways, but maybe the one that best illustrates it is found in 1 Samuel chapter 13. It says, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgah and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the priest's offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. All right, this is kind of, kind of hard to follow, even if you read the whole context to it, it's kind of difficult. But essentially, this is what occurs. Saul is going to go into battle, and Samuel told him to, to wait seven days, and in seven days, I will come, and we're going to make sacrifices before the Lord. Well, it's been seven days, and Samuel hasn't made his way to Saul, and they're not making the sacrifices and the people are beginning to worry. Like, what's going on? Maybe we should scatter, maybe we should flee, maybe we shouldn't follow this guy Saul. And what Saul does is he breaks the words that Samuel gave him and he offers the sacrifices himself. So he's disobeying Samuel, who's a prophet, so he's disobeying God, but also he may be stepping into the role of a priest by offering the sacrifices. And if you know something about kind of biblical history, the king was not supposed to be the priest. The king priest reserved for another. But, but the, the kingly line in Israel, the, the, those shouldn't merge, so he shouldn't step into the role of priest. So he may be breaking the boundaries of what a king ought to be, and on top of that, disobeying Samuel and the Lord, and doing so, he begins to trust in himself rather than the words and promises of God. Samuel shows up and says this, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commands of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You feel that? The Lord would have established Saul's kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Because of Saul's disobedience, the royal line, the kingly line, is removed from his house and it's given to another. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So God reaches out to Samuel and Samuel's sad, he's devastated. And he's not sad at the decisions of God. He's, he's sad and disappointed with what's happened with Saul. Remember how our story began with Samuel? He served the Lord, but his sons didn't. Now, it's almost as if Saul was another son, like an adopted son. Wherever King Saul went, there was Samuel the prophet by his side, teaching him the ways of the Lord. And now at the end, once again, his son walks away from the Lord. 
It's, it's heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking story to see this faithful man have all of his children walk away. But the Lord says, you know, you've got to get up. We're going to anoint another king. Go to the house of Jesse. And this guy, Jesse, is going to have a son who will be the real king. So Jesse, uh, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and he starts looking at the sons of Jesse. And one of the first ones that comes up, it says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So remember how, how we started off by saying, maybe these passages concentrating on like the height and stature, this is the way the author winking at us to saying like, this isn't the way this should be working. Now what was hinted at is made explicitly clear. You can't just trust the outward. You have to look at the inside and that's what God can do. Only God can do. So this guy Eliab isn't, Samuel goes to the other sons and none of the sons are the ones that the Lord's choosing. And so then Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him for we will not sit till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy and had, he, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brother. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So it's the youngest son, the one who's not even there, who you don't even think is going to be it. That's the one who God chooses. Now also, once again, it focuses on physical appearance. It says he's ruddy. It also says he's handsome. So it's not as if like all the, guy, the handsome guys in the Bible are bad guys. That's not, it's not what it's saying. But it is missing something important here, Right? What's different? What doesn't it focus on? His height. The height thing. Now, why was height important for the people of Israel? Because they wanted someone to physically embody the militaristic might, the power. They want someone who can go toe-to-toe with giants. They want someone who is so big and strong, they can go toe-to-toe with someone named Goliath. Who should that have been? That should be Saul. He's the tallest man Israel has. And that's just not like, okay, he's tall. It means he's the warrior. But Saul trusts in just physical strength and physical might. If you're familiar with the story of the young boy named David, he is the one who goes and fights the giant. The one who's not the tallest in the land. And what does David say? I don't come to you, Goliath, just with sword and spear and shield. I come to you in the name of the Lord. In other words, he is not looking at this battle as a mere physical battle. There is spiritual reality at play. And so it's David who will slay the giant, not the tall Saul. Now, David's life is going to be filled with ups and downs, and there's a whole series there in and of itself. Nevertheless, at a certain point in King David's reign, God shows up and promises David this. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. 
and his throne shall be established forever. David, I'm going to give your son an everlasting kingdom. He is going to be a king unlike any other king. Now, pause for a second. There's some things listed here that are really easy to pass over, but you have to understand the significance of them in the biblical narrative. God tells David, your son is going to build me a house. Now that kind of sounds weird, like God needs, needs a house? Like how, how much square, square footage do you need to build God a house? Like what's the purpose of that? It's not a house like we think of, it's the temple. David's, the son of David will build the temple. Why is the temple important? The temple is the place where God will dwell with his people. Now let's put some of the pieces together. David's son will build the house where God will dwell with his people. Where is that? In the promised land, the garden-like paradise. So God is once again going to dwell with his people in a garden-like paradise. And the son of David is the one who's going to bring this about. The son of David will be the one who builds the house so that God can dwell with his people like he did in Eden and he himself will be a king like no other. Now, if you put the pieces together, it is abundantly clear the best possible candidate, maybe the only candidate to be the one to defeat the serpent of old is this Solomon. He is the king. He's taking Israel back to the garden, back to dwelling with the living God. And maybe this new king, this new Adam-like figure, will do what the first Adam figure could not do. Now, that serves as the setup for the story of the life and reign of King Solomon, the one whom the Bible says was the wisest man on the entire planet. Now, David's life leading up to the birth of his son is filled with the biggest ups you can think of and the biggest downs. It is a story of victory and success, but also of absolute failure. If, if you're familiar with David's story, you know that it's, it's like horrific on multiple levels. David many times seeks after God's own heart. Many times he, he goes the other way. And because of David's faults and failures, his family is a, like a train wreck. There is murder, there is adultery, there is violence. Things, and his, like his wife's, his wife's, get the hint about the, what, how, how is David doing? And his children, it, it's so whack that eventually some of his own children try to kill, the, they try to usurp and kill their father. Like it's a horrific story. Nevertheless, God made some promises, and he said, despite David's faults and failures, at the end of the day, David continually repents and seeks after the Lord in the midst of those faults and failures. And so because of that, God gives these promises. Now, this is what should be incredibly encouraging for every single person here today. Saul's life is filled with sin and failure, and chaos, and all the things that the king should be that was listed way back in Deuteronomy. They break the rules. David breaks the rules. And there's brothers against brothers. It's like Cain and Abel all over again in the story of David and his family. There is sin. There is, there's just 
evil upon evil upon evil. But in the midst of all the failures and faults of humanities, God proves himself to be true. And the story ends, our story begins with the ending of this story with the fact that God will put his king on the throne. So despite all the the horrible stuff that's going on in Israel, the brokenness, the faults, the sin, the shame, all of that, God will be faithful and he will put his king on the throne. Which means that if God can stay true to his promises in the midst of all of that, you can take God's word to the bank. He is faithful and true. Whatever chaos there is in the world, out there, chaos there is in your life, chaos in your family, because trust me, it's not as bad as David's. In and through that, God was working to bring about his sovereign purposes. And he did put his king on the throne. The son of David did sit on the throne. So whatever's going on today, whatever worries you have, I'm not belittling that. I'm just saying you can take God's promises to the bank. You can trust in them. He is faithful. He will stay true to his word. King David reflects on this in Psalm 2. He talks about how just the world is in like chaos and people try to kill God's king and they strike at God. He says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of this earth, they set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his king, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The world is filled with evil and there's rulers and they set themselves against God and his anointed king and they plot and they conspire. And what is God going to do? How will God respond to the sum total of human wickedness and corruption, raising their fist in defiance against his sovereign purposes? How does God respond to that? He who sits in the heavens laughs. God will put his king on the throne. The ending of David's life. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. This will be the story of the life and reign of Solomon. And if you've never heard the story of the life of Solomon, trust me, you gotta stick with us. It's crazy. It's, it's on another level. And if you have been raised like Christian or you know the, the, the story of Solomon, trust me, there's a lot of things that, that are really easy to miss that are incredibly profound and powerful. So stick with us. We'll be here for six weeks. Now, the one major takeaway from all of this, just as an introduction to the life of Solomon, is the fact that God puts his king on the throne. He'll find his king and he will install him. And 2,000 years ago, the true son of David came to earth. And he came to earth not just to defeat a mere earthly Nahash, a mere earthly serpent, but he came to defeat the serpent of old, the enemy from the beginning. And in doing so, he strikes not only at that serpent, but at sin and death as well. And the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ is that in and through his death and resurrection, he defeats the great enemies. He saves his people from the enemies. He brings about their salvation and we can rejoice gladly. He fights that. And the incredible thing that he does on our behalf is the absolute inverse of earthly kings. Earthly kings shed the blood of their enemies. This king sheds his blood to deliver his enemies. 
And we're gonna transition in a few moments to communion and then to baptism. And what makes these, these two sacraments of the church so amazing to kind of be a part of this series is that they are both about giving our allegiance. We now, as believers, give our allegiance to the world's true king. No matter what's going on in the world, no matter what earthly rulers are up to, there is a king who is at the right hand of the Father who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we joyfully, with gladness, submit to him and give him our allegiance. We give our allegiance to the true son of David, who has defeated our enemies and delivered us from captivity. And so let's stand as we take communion. And after communion, for those people getting baptized, if you're not already ready to get baptized, you can go through this door. There'll be changing rooms. There's people there to help you. On the night that Jesus, the true son of David, was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body. It's given for you. And so we remember that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. He gives freely. And so, Lord, we want to remember that you were faithful to us even when we didn't deserve it. So, Lord, we remember your death today. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. It's the blood of the new covenant. It's the reminder that our king sheds his blood in order to save us. And so as we take this, we are giving our allegiance to King Jesus. When we take this, we are proclaiming his death and resurrection until he returns. And so we want to be faithful to the true king, king of kings and lord of lords, who's a good king, who loves us and seeks us out. So Lord, we drink and we pledge our allegiance to you.